So we've just heard all of John chapter 10 read. And the best way that I know of to get a sense for what's going on here is to tell you two stories. Both are true. The first is the story of something that happened in Jerusalem, in the very city where Jesus is doing what he's doing, saying what he's saying in John chapter 10. It's something that happened in that particular city about 200 years prior to this moment where Jesus is saying these things. It was the year 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king, took Jerusalem by storm. One of the ancient historical accounts puts it this way. Raging like a wild animal, Antiochus Epiphanes ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy any human they could find. And this resulted in a massacre, quote, of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days in Jerusalem, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 met a violent death, and the same number were sold into slavery. Fast forward three years. The year 165 B.C., if that's confusing, It counts down as you get to zero, and then it counts back up. The year 165 B.C., it's the third winter after Antiochus conquered the city. Many of the survivors by this point have lost hope. They've lost hope that good fortune would ever return. And the primary source of their pain and despair is the loss of their great and beautiful temple. It was, after all, to these people, to the Jews, the house of their God, the one true God of the whole world. And now the Greeks have looted the temple, outlawed the Jewish religion, erected an altar to Zeus in the middle of the temple, and are slaughtering pigs on that altar. So as you can imagine, there is widespread despair. But as you can also imagine, there is the whiff of revolution. And suddenly, it boils over. Judas Maccabeus leads a sudden attack and succeeds. He overthrows the tyrant And he liberates the city. So three years to the day after the invasion, the Jewish people solemnly regain their temple, purify the temple, and offer the proper sacrifices once again. They lit the lamps and they prayed to the God of heaven and earth that they would never again suffer such a thing. And they commanded that every year for eight days there would be a festival to commemorate that moment. And they call that festival the Festival of Dedication 
or the festival of lights, or does anybody know what they call it now? Hanukkah. That's Hanukkah. It's the 25th month of, of a Jewish counting of months that lines up, the 25th day of a Jewish counting of months that lines up roughly with our day, December 25th. Now, for, for his remarkable courage and leadership and devotion, Judas Maccabeus was made king, king of Israel. And his dynasty lasted for a century. It lasted for a hundred years until the Romans took over. And when the Romans took over, they got rid of the Maccabean dynasty and installed their king, who was a vassal, who would do what they wanted, Herod, he liked to go by the humble nickname, Herod the Great. So the Romans kicked out the Maccabean dynasty and installed their own king. Now, Herod was no dummy. He knew that he not only had to work with Rome, he had to deal with the people of Israel. So guess who he married? A Maccabean princess. He was no dummy politically. He did this in order to consolidate power. So that's the first story that you've got to know and hold in your imagination if you're going to deliver John chapter 10 from the flannel board of your adolescence and childhood at Vacation Bible School. Number two. The second story that will probably be more familiar to some of us. This story happened 1,000 years prior to Jesus's Words in John chapter 10. And this is the story of King David. Before becoming king of Israel, does anyone here know what David's vocation was before he took on a royal vocation? He was a shepherd. And he was a poet shepherd, a musician. And does anyone know his most famous poem? Anybody know? Psalm 23. The psalm we read together earlier, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, David was Israel's most famous king. He was Israel's most successful king. And as a result, he became the ideal king. That makes sense, right? I mean, you can imagine in a nation's history that it looks back to its most successful leader at its most successful moment, and that becomes the paradigm for leadership, rulership of the nation. So for Israel, from the time of David on, Israel, when it thought of a mighty leader, a powerful person, it thought through the lens of a shepherd. Now, this is very different than our imaginations have been programmed, right? When we think of a great leader, most of us don't think through the picture of a shepherd. Why? Well, because our nation has a different history. Because our nation's most successful moments, because Western Enlightenment's most powerful figures are different. We don't think of rulers and leaders in the same way Israel did. When we think of rulers and leaders, modern Americans tend to think of people running big companies, presidents of banks and transnational corporations. We think of people sitting behind desks, dictating letters, chairing meetings. 
When we think of powerful rulers and powerful leaders, we tend to think in terms of someone who is removed from the people they work with because their job demands that, and they seldom see face-to-face their employees. Who of us has ever imagined the best president as being someone who knows each of us by name? Right? There's so many things about our culture that just don't let you go there. That's not the way. You didn't vote for the person who knew you. In fact, if anybody had risen up and said, so-and-so can't be president because they don't even know me, that, that would have fallen flat. That's just not the way we think about leadership. We think of leadership as people who don't necessarily know the names of the many, but removed from them, they make decisions that deeply impact them. But in Israel, during the time of Jesus, this was not the image they had. Their framework for the ideal leader was the ideal shepherd, someone who spent most of the hours of most of his days with his sheep. So much so that today, still in the Middle East, you can see the same phenomenon that David is referencing in Psalm 23 and Jesus is referencing in John chapter 10. You can see in the early morning hours a sheep pen filled with hundreds of sheep guarded by a guard at the door and a shepherd shows up and starts calling sheep by name doing a call that he's taught his sheep and then walking out in front of them, not behind them. And out of all these hundreds of sheep, some began to disentangle from the group and follow him. I was in Kenya several years ago and I was out way in the bush and suddenly I was with a group of veterinarians. Thousands of sheep and cattle showed up. Thousands. And there was a, there was a group of Maasai. And they began to argue with one another about who was going to go first for the inoculations. And there were just thousands of sheep and, go, and, and um, cattle everywhere. And then, and then suddenly, whoever won the argument in ways I couldn't quite tell, particular cattle would come forward. And then that person would leave. Why? Because these people are spending day and night with their flock. And they know them. They know their individual characters and markings and likes and dislikes. And what's more, the sheep know the voice of their particular shepherd. This is a total, I mean, can you see in your mind's eye a shepherd walking along and doing this kind of shrill thing with his voice and behind him being a hundred sheep walking out of a pen of several hundred sheep following him down a path. This is not sentimentalization. This is the way they function in a land without fences. So putting these two stories together, every time the Jewish people celebrated Hanukkah, they not only thought about God and liberation from Antiochus Epiphanes, they also thanked God for having their temple back and they thought about kings. And the way kings functioned. And the way kings became kings. And what a a good king was like. So let's look in John chapter 10 at verse 22. At that time, 
the feast of dedication, that's Hanukkah, took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple. Down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, when Jesus walks around talking about himself as the good shepherd, it's not slightly effeminate Jesus with flowers in his hair on a flannel board walking around telling a cute little story in a hyper-sentimentalized way. This is Jesus at his most controversial This is Jesus making a totalizing claim about power and rule, about God's kingdom and the world's kingdoms, about God appointing a true king for Israel and thus for the whole world. And this claim is not being made where there has been a vacuum for someone waiting, wanting to fill it, but this is being made where there are too many kings Too many rulers, and all of them anxious and ready to strike at anyone who tries to stake out a new claim. This isn't a warm, fuzzy Jesus. This is controversial Jesus. You see, when Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd... He's making the controversial claim that he is the real king who has come at last to Israel. And through Israel, he is ascending to the throne of the whole world. He is becoming the actual ruler of the actual real world we live in. This is why Verse 19 tells us, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he's got a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? Because only if you know those backstories does what that sound like is crazy talk. I submit to you that the story many of us have grown up with, with flannel board Jesus, that doesn't sound like crazy talk. That wouldn't incite a riot. That wouldn't cause people to accuse him of demon possession. No. This is why, jump jump over to verse 31, they picked up stones to stone him. In verse 39, they sought to arrest him. Jesus is making a bold and challenging and controversial claim that provoked murderous rage. Now let's stop there. And let's take account of all this because this is actually the central point of John's gospel. John is telling a particular story about Jesus and it is quite astonishing. He's telling the story of how the living God became the real ruler Of the real world. Now. Stop being religious for a moment. And just think about those words. John is telling the story. Of how. 
one God, the only God, became the ruler of the whole world. Since Christmas Day, we've been reading through the Gospel of John as a church on Sunday mornings. Um, the sermons have been going through it. Many of you have been reading it daily in your devotionals. We've been seeing wonderful things about Jesus around Galilee. And this morning, in John chapter 10, we climb one of the tallest trees in the entire beautiful forest of John's gospel. And from this point of view, we can see the whole forest. In John chapter 10, we have one of those chapters when you're reading a book, it's that moment when you sense you're at the very heart of the story. And it is the story of how the living God became the ruler of the whole world. Now, again, let's stop there and think about this remarkable statement. And to be very honest, I think if we were to encounter this statement, if, I think that if, if, if you were to stand up in a class at Eastern Mennonite University, or James Madison University, or at a conference for all of Merck's employees. I think if you were to stand up and say that, that Jesus Christ is the real ruler of this entire world, of all of reality that we experience. I think that many people listening to you, and I think if we could really hear this right now, I think many of us in this room, I think that sounds odd. I think it strikes us as a strange thing to say. I think this for several reasons. I think, first of all, many of us have learned to read the Gospels as if they're telling a different story. See, I think deeply committed Christians in this room, if they were pushed into a corner and said, what is the story that the Gospels tell about Jesus? I think many Christians in this room wouldn't have said that. I think many of us have been taught to read the Bible different than that. I think many of us... We, we've been taught that the central story the Gospels are telling is that Jesus is God. That those miracles prove he's God. That his resurrection from the dead proves he's God. Now, it's true enough, he is God. But that's not the story the Gospels are telling. I think also many of us have been taught that because of his death, our sins can be forgiven. And all we have to do is believe that. And rather than trying to impress God with doing good things, we can experience the forgiveness of our sins and the ticket to heaven by just believing that story. Now, again, that's true. That's absolutely true. That does come up in the Gospels, just like Jesus' divinity comes up within the Gospels. But neither of those are the central or the center of the story. They're both a part of the story. 
The story that John's gospel is telling and the other three gospels, each in their own distinctive way, the stories that all four of the biblical gospels are telling is, is more than Jesus is God and by trusting in his death, your sins can be forgiven. Definitely that, but it's more than that. All four Gospels go way beyond the claim that Jesus is God and way beyond the claim that your sins are forgiven through his death and resurrection. All four of them make that, but then they press that toward a much larger, much more controversial claim. They each tell the story of how the living God in Jesus, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, became the real king of this world that we really live in. And many of us have learned to read the Bible not through that lens, but through the lens of Jesus is divine and he forgives your sins. That's one reason I think it strikes some of us as odd to hear that at the center of John 10 and at the center of all the Gospels is the story of how Jesus becomes king, ruler, leader of this world. Because we've just been taught to read the Bible through an aspect of what the Bible is saying. Second, a second reason I think this statement strikes some as odd is that for some people, when they hear me say, that Jesus is now, right now, because of his life, death, and resurrection, right now, he, he is sitting on the throne of the world. He's ruling the world. For many people, that just doesn't square with reality. If God is really king, why is there still cancer? Why are there still tsunamis and, and tyranny and genocide and child abuse and massive economic corruption if Jesus is God? With all that that implies, with all the, the compassion and love that we pack into that and all the power that we're saying lies behind that, then why doesn't he do something? What kind of ruler is this? Why doesn't he, if, he's, if this loving, powerful entity is really ruling this world, then he stinks at his job. Why doesn't he do something about the cruelness and the brokenness of the world? If Jesus is God, then why do evil and loneliness and meaninglessness still exist? So that's, I think, another fundamental reason that it's hard for us to hear the, the great central claim of the gospel and of John chapter 10. So we domesticate it down to this super comforting, sentimentalized flannel board Jesus, and we keep it there. Now, flannel board Jesus is beautiful, and it is a great comfort to me in many moments of my life. But keeping him there is a domestication because this other thing I'm saying, this is far too hard to wrap our minds around. The third reason I think that, that the main story of the Gospels strikes us as so odd is because in the words of the academic world, we live this side of colonialism. So we're allergic to the very idea of universal kingship. Isn't God as the king triumphalistic? Doesn't that lead us? Toward arrogance? 
Isn't one of the biggest problems of our day religious groups thinking they've got a corner on the market of truth and power? Doesn't this lead to the rape and wholesale destruction of ethnic groups and cultures? Isn't this just some trumped up form of white European supremacy? And isn't the great need of our day for a generous and humble pluralism? To claim that Jesus Christ is the one and only real and true and rightful king of the world. Isn't that one of the problems, not the solution? So just to be very clear, in John chapter 10, we see that the main story the Gospels tell us about Jesus is the story of how the living God became the real king of the world in which we live And this is difficult for some of us to hear because it doesn't square with the way we've learned to read the Gospels. Because for some of us, it's difficult to accept in in light of continuing evil. And for some of us, it's difficult because it's so dang exclusivistic. Now Let's go back to John chapter 10. And see if we can resolve some of these very serious difficulties. When scripture declares that Jesus is the one and only king of the world, it's important to let scripture tell us what kind of king we're dealing with. For example, look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly in good ancient Middle Eastern fashion. Jesus doesn't mind mixing his metaphors, right? I mean, some of us, if we wrote this kind of jumbled up metaphor at, at university, our teacher would say back, keep your metaphors straight. Pick one. You're the shepherd or you're the gate, like you're switching on me. But the Middle Eastern universities, they allowed this kind, they love this kind of stuff, all right? So just tell your teacher that. I'm all Middle Eastern. What is he saying here? He's saying here that not only am I the true king, but here's what kind of king I am. I am a king who gives safety. Real safety. And a fulfilled life. With me, you are not vulnerable, and your life isn't meaningless. Your life fills to overflowing with substance, with satisfaction. Again, listen to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, I think a lot of us, when we think of a king, a ruler, we think of cold power. Objective power, removed power, power that ravages and ignores and doesn't know us. Can we stretch our imaginations to a power that is not like that? To a power that knows your name. That will lead you. Not into some group. Loss of distinction. But into your real 
identity. Your particular identity. You see, can you imagine a king, college students, that knows your path forward? That can guide you through the bewildering challenge of finding a way in life. If if such a person ran for president, that actually offered every single one of us, that if that person became president, every one of us would discover our unrepeatable uniqueness. And, And now we would be a nation with not a single drop of sameness. A nation of radical diversity where each of us are unrepeatably unrepeatably unique. Who wouldn't vote for such a person who also said, I can do that while securing peace and safety. Don't we long for an immigration law that values not only the individuals, but also security? Wouldn't this be the solution? Wouldn't it be just a wonderful path forward for our nation if we stopped sacrificing whole individuals in the name of group security? This is what he's promising. This is the kind of king he says he is. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's making the astonishing claim that those who hear his voice and recognize it as the voice of their shepherd will be safe forever. He will look after them, and not even death itself, the last great enemy, will ultimately harm them. So yes... This is a theocracy, but this is benevolent theocracy. Not benevolent theocracy with a satirical tone behind it, but actually benevolent kingship. Because the king we're talking about is also the creator, and because he is essentially love incarnate. This is the way for each of us. To become truly ourselves. Through the kingship of Jesus. Each one of us at last can experience. A life of richness. And intense meaning. And deep satisfaction. A life of weight. And substance. A life of significance. That's what. Everlasting life means. And the way. He is going to secure this. Look, just think, what I'm trying to say to you is that this is the only path to everything you deeply want. Your deep angst over the, over the anger in this world, over the evil in this world, your, your struggle with your own incapacity to be the person you really want to be, your frustration at your own powerlessness to move this world To a good path. All of your deepest longings. What I'm saying is. Jesus is the source. For you pulling that off. You see. I think that sometimes. 
we Christians, we need to just stop and realize. In the 1950s, in America, I think in many places in America, the great angst was guilt and condemnation. And the church presented Jesus as the answer to guilt and condemnation. I think right now what most of us feel, our biggest struggle is not guilt and condemnation. I think most of us, our biggest struggle is meaninglessness and a lack of significance and a disorientation. How do I actually get to do the good things I want to do in life? And what Jesus is offering here is he is the way to do that. He is the way you can move out of your anger and your impatience. Tap into Jesus and you can draw down on eternal compassion. How's he going to pull this off? How does Jesus actually secure such beautiful offerings to us? Well, here's where it gets hard to believe. Because Jesus says, the way I'm going to secure that kind of life and power and make it available to you, the way I'm going to do that is through my own violent death. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches him and scatters him. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, granted, if many of us were writing this story and we were inventing it in our own minds, I'm sure that many of us wouldn't conceive of this as being the way. Somehow, Jesus is saying, I'm going to draw down the evil of this world. I'm going to draw it to its full, arrogant height. I'm going to step in front of it. I'm going to step in front of all the political and social and and emotional and moral evil in this world. And somehow the story of the death of Jesus is the point at at which evil in all of its forms comes rushing together in the violent and bloody execution of Jesus. And by doing that, he defeats it. Now, I know... That that's not what any of us would have invented. You see, what the Gospels offer is not a philosophical explanation of evil, what it's like or why it's there. And they do not offer a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyles so that evil will mysteriously disappear from this world. What the Gospels offer when it comes to the problem of evil is not any of that. What they offer is the story of an event in which the living God deals with evil. And now, the cross has become for us the new temple. The place where we go to meet the true God. To tap into real love. 
And this God is not only the creator, he is the savior, the redeemer. The cross becomes the place of pilgrimage where we stand and gaze at our creator who loves us. The cross becomes the sign that evil symbolized in the might and power of sheer, brutal, coercive force has been decisively challenged by a different power, the power of love and the power that will win the day. Go back to verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Remember earlier I said that he didn't come into a vacuum, but he came into a world with many kings. There are many paths on offer today for how you can become yourself. For how you can become truly you. There is only one remaining moral absolute in our society, and it is to be true to yourself. It's the, it's the card that trumps every argument. And there's a lot of goodness in that move in our, in our society. I am so glad I live in a culture that values individuals. I am so glad I live in a moment in time where there's a deep recognition that each one of us is unrepeatably unique. And one of the greatest journeys and quests anybody ever faces is the quest to become yourself. But here's the trick. Any way other than Jesus will destroy you. Any path you choose other than the Lord Jesus Christ is an imposter path. It is walking up to the door in the horror movie. About to go in. Everybody watching knows the bad guy's on the other side of the door. Don't do it. Can't you hear the scary music? Don't you know when it starts playing, you don't open the door? I mean, just look at our world. There are two fundamental plot lines in movies today. One is that romantic love is the greatest force in the universe and it will empower you to overcome every obstacle. If you can tap into romantic love, you can even marry an ogre, Shrek. You can be faithful to somebody who has a debilitating mental illness, the notebook. Romantic love is the power. That is your salvation. Find that. So tell me, the group of people making that story, is it working for them? Is Hollywood right now, this thriving, luxuriant garden of fecund love? The second plot line that our culture tells over and over and over is that the way to become truly yourself is to push off society and go on the inward journey in isolation from your community, whether it's frozen or any other show, The Sound of Music, I mean, it's not just young people music, then the whole point is to have the courage to discover the way society is crimping you and to reject it. 
Now, in both of these stories, there's great truth. Because all successful worldviews are parasitic on truth, or they wouldn't last. And the truth in both of them, the truth in the romantic love story, is that romantic love is great. It is powerful. Some of the most beautiful lines I've ever read in my life are at the end of Song of Solomon, where death itself cannot extinguish the flame of romantic love. And it is true that the inward journey to yourself is the most challenging journey you'll ever face, and it is important. But the problem is both of the stories Hollywood is telling us are parasitic on truth. And so we have to discern not just the truth, but we have to subvert the lie. And the lie of that second story is that you'll become a jerk if you think that society is your greatest threat. And you forget you don't need society to be evil. That there is darkness inside of you. What I'm saying is that John chapter 10 is Jesus promising you the answer to both of those stories. But in a way we struggle with. In an ironic way to us. It's by humbling ourselves And believing that this crazy story that none of us would have written. Is the way. To the supreme power. To compassionate love. To becoming truly ourselves. I am the good shepherd. Unfortunately, our English word good doesn't quite catch the full meaning of the word John has. You see, the word John uses here also to the people who were originally speaking this language. It's not our word good. It's a word good that also simultaneously always also means beautiful. But it's not about physical attractiveness. It's about the sheer attractiveness of what he is doing. When he calls people who want to come, when they realize he has died for them, when they realize that the brutal, bloody cross was for you, that it was for me, that it's for Silas. It's for CJ. That when we kneel and face the cross, it is our Savior. The Lord is my shepherd. Then suddenly, there is a beauty. There is a strange, compelling power of beautiful love. And I'm not telling So many of you, something you don't already know. So many of us, we know this. This is why we're here. Because Jesus loves me. At the cost of his own life. Have you done this? Are you ready to turn your whole life and look at Jesus with that open, vulnerable gaze? And draw the right conclusion about who he is? Because that's the only way to pull off the life you so desperately want. That's the only way.
to real, true, deep satisfaction, forgiveness of your sins, deliverance from the life we all deserve. This is the only way to satisfy the hungers of your heart. Look in your worship guides. Look at the first song we sang. The chorus, come all ye pining hungry poor, the Savior's bounty taste. Behold a never failing store for every willing guest. God stops in front of doors that are closed. Will you open the door of your life and your heart and your imagination to him? The source of every good. Every good thing you want to do. Many of which you've pulled off. But what about all those you can't pull off? He's the source. Here shall your numerous wants receive a free, a full supply. Those of us who are Christians, this is why we're here. This is what we've discovered. If you're not a Christian, if you have not turned your life toward this, then look, what I'm doing is not trying to prove Jesus. I'm inviting you to give him a try and see, just see if it's not true. I mean, what do you have to lose? (laughs) What if it is? What if you discover that he is the source of every good and true and beautiful thing, then wouldn't you say, who cares about all the arguments? Can't explain it, can't prove it, but I know it's true. And there are so many of us in this room who have experienced this. He's the good shepherd. He's so beautiful. I hope you would turn to him. I hope that each of us this week will turn toward him and gaze upon the cross and discover that that is the temple. That is where we meet God. Let's pray.